It's wonderful to see you here today at the Vista. Now, if we haven't met before, my name is Austin. I get to serve here as one of our lead pastors. Join us for the first time, first time in a long time, whatever the case may be. We're just glad that you're here, and we hope that you feel loved and welcomed and wanted, that you fit right in and make yourself at home here today at the Vista. Uh, we're about halfway through this series called To the Scattered, a series where we're walking through the biblical book known as First Peter, more properly the first letter of Peter. We'll pick things up where Dave left off last week here in chapter two. So if you got your Bibles, grab them. We'll be up here on the screen for you as well, though, if you'd like to read along. So First Peter 2, we'll pick it up in verse 11, read through the uh, end of chapter two. It says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust which wage war against the soul. Now keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Now act as free men, but don't use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Now, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Ugh, it's a tough verse, isn't it? Ugh. For this finds favor if, for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if, when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you've been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. First Peter 2, verses 11 through 25. So immediately here in verse 11, we come upon this theme that we have encountered numerous times in the letter, and that's this idea that you and me were what? Well, we're aliens and strangers in the world in a certain sense, meaning we have been scattered out among the nations in the hopes that we would grow up into a source of healing and blessing for all of the nations by being faithfully planted wherever God has scattered us. It's a background image for the entire book. And so our mission in the world is not to control the world. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, you remember? But neither is our mission in the world to like escape the world because think about it. How exactly would the church escape the world. A lot of Christians have tried it throughout history, none with much success. Stanley Harawas, he's one of my favorite theologians, and he's got this great line where he says, the problem with the church escaping the world is that there's nowhere to go. 
Right? And his point is that, like, you know, where are you going to go? You're going to go to Mars? You're going to hop on one of Elon's rockets? Like, there's just nowhere for the church to go because the world, like, oftentimes we talk about the church and the world as if they're these, you know, very binary, cleanly separable groups. That's just not how it really works, is it? Because, look, the, the world is filled with the church. Look around. The world's filled with the church. And the church is filled with the world because the church is filled with sinners who exist in the world even while existing in the church. This is why it's always really silly and wrong-headed when you see people who are just relentlessly critical and negative of the world and always do so from this posture of what I'd call accusatory distance. You ever done this? I've done this. It's like they're standing up above the world. I don't know how they got there, but they apparently put themselves up there, looking down their noses at the world in judgment, scolding the world for its badness. You've been a very bad world. Now look, I, I do believe that there are many things that are wrong with the world. But I've also found it very safe and biblical to assume that just about anything that I find wrong with the world is probably wrong with me too. I don't know about you, but I haven't found anything out there that's not also very much in here. And this brings us to the second part of verse 11, wherein we aliens and strangers are called to, I quote here, abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. What we see explicitly stated here is everywhere else implicitly assumed throughout Scripture, and that is that every single one of us is caught up in this cosmic spiritual battle wherein fleshly lust wage war against the soul, or as Fyodor Dostoevsky once put it in the Brothers Karamazov, this is a really great little quote here, God and the devil are fighting, and the battlefield is the human heart. Every single human heart is a battlefield. Now, it is possible to take some of the spiritual warfare stuff a little too hysterically at times. And this hysteria usually takes the form of you blaming everything that doesn't go your way to the work of the devil. You ever done that? You ever seen one does that? Why didn't you get that promotion? The devil. Why don't you say no to prom? The devil. Why did the 49ers beat the, you know what, out of the Cowboys? The devil. There might be some truth to that one. I'm not sure. There's something going on in San Francisco, and I don't like it. Um, so that's one example of getting a little bit too hysterical. I'm reminded of the time uh, televangelist Kenneth Copeland uh, once said that he needed a private jet to do the Lord's work uh, because to fly commercial was, and I quote, to fly in a tube full of demons. Okay, so that's why he needed to do the Lord's work. He thinks that's bad. He had to ride in a car with my kids, man. It's the exact same thing. So that is one example of getting a little bit too hysterical with all the spiritual warfare stuff, but there are many others, and it's a big mistake because while Scripture is clear that we are, every last one of us, in the midst of this cosmic spiritual battle, Scripture is also really clear that, y'all, uh, the outcome is kind of secure because in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's already won, right? There's a reason every time we see Jesus in heaven, he's doing what? He's sitting with his feet kicked up beside the Father, okay? It's a done deal. But now, to, to work the emphasis in the other direction a little bit, uh, while you don't want to take the spiritual warfare stuff too hysterically, you should take it seriously. You should take it very seriously. Uh, because God and the devil are fighting it out. 
And every single human heart is fleshly lust, wage war against the soul. This brings us to verse 12. It says this, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. I actually like the way New Testament scholar Douglas Herring translates verse 12. Here's how he puts it. Live the way of goodness among the nations so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God when he comes in the day of visitation. I'm a sucker for that first phrase. Anybody else? Live the way of goodness among the nations. You see, that, that is our evangelism strategy, just as it was the strategy of the very first Christians. One of my favorite books written a few years ago, it's called The Patient Ferment <clears throat> excuse me, of the Early Church. Right, The Patient Ferment of the early church. And as the title implies, it tells the story of how the early Christians, right, against all odds, won over the ancient pagan world to this rather ridiculous belief that this Jewish peasant who was crucified by the Roman authorities was the Lord of all creation and Savior of the world. It's pretty astonishing that the earliest Christians did this. And um, I don't want to spoil the book for you, but in the event that you don't read it. Um, The book's major conclusion is that the earliest Christians won over the ancient world with genius marketing stuff like this. Hopefully, you have sensed that I am joking. (laughs) Because actually, uh, the earliest Christians won over the pagan world to the belief that Jesus Christ was Lord by simply living true, good, and beautiful lives. Not by making perfectly airbrushed videos of beautiful college students doing terrible lip syncs of worship songs, <laughs> looking like a bunch of morons. I love the way Cyprian, he was this third century bishop. Here's how he put it, man. He was a no-nonsense fellow. I like him a lot. He said, look, beloved brethren, we are philosophers not in words, but in deeds. We exhibit our wisdom not by our dress, but by our truth. We know virtues by their practice, rather through boasting of them. We do not speak great things. We live them. Amen? We don't lip sync great things. We just live them. Uh, I'd be willing to bet that no matter who you are, no matter how much spiritual dysfunction you have in your life, um, some part of you is drawn to this idea that there is a way of goodness and you are made to walk in it. Some part of you is drawn to it. That's why you're here today. Even if you didn't know it, that's why you're here today. You're drawn to the way of goodness. And so how do you do it? How do we walk the way of goodness? Well, Do you want the good news or the bad news? We'll start with the good news. The good news is that Peter lays it all out very clearly. It's very difficult to miss it. You don't have to wonder how to do it. It's super clear. The bad news is that I I do not think you're going to like it very much, okay? Verse 13, here's how you walk the way of goodness. 
Submit yourselves to every human creature because of the Lord. I don't know if there are any marketing majors in the room today. If there are, I want to run this by you. I'm willing to bet that if you were helping uh, to craft a slogan for an aspiring revolutionary movement, you probably wouldn't come up with a slogan like, submit yourselves to every human creature, right? I mean, it is tough to think of a more not revolutionary slogan. The closest one I'd come up with would be something like, you know, viva la revolution, obey your parents. Doesn't that sound like a good one for a child dedication? We're gonna sell those out in the lobby. You can put it at a kid's wall and grow up with it. But your parents. And so while it sounds very not revolutionary, submitting ourselves to every human creature. Every is a very comprehensive word, isn't it? It is clearly the way of goodness revolution that Peter challenges his fellow Christians to join, and he goes to great lengths to explain what it looks like and why, despite appearances, it is actually the most revolutionary thing that you could ever do. It actually makes all other revolutions look pretty silly. So in verses 13 through 17, he he then goes on to touch on what was certainly a very confusing and delicate issue for these first century Christians to whom he was writing, and that was the issue of the authorities. And if you think that we modern people have a complicated relationship with the authorities, I'd like you to imagine for just a second being one of these first century Christians who's living in the shadow of the Roman Empire, okay? The same Roman Empire, who not very long ago had unjustly convicted and crucified Jesus Christ and was increasingly persecuting you. I'm talking real-life persecution. I slap on this, persecuting you for doing the same. I want you to imagine that. And so all that to say, no matter how bad you think we've got it now or how bad it's trending, they had it much, 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 much worse. And what Peter says here is more or less the same thing that the Apostle Paul says about the authorities in Romans 13 and Titus 3. We'll read them. He says, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority is opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Titus 3, 1 through 2, it's going to sound very familiar. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one. To be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Now, the church, capital C, has always wrestled with these verses. Because the church has always recognized that a rigidly literal interpretation of them would lead us to some pretty untenable conclusions. So like, for example, uh, whatever Peter and Paul are saying here about obeying the authorities... They're clearly not saying that you should just obey the authorities no matter what. Because if the authorities tell you that you have to I don't, curse Jesus Christ and worship the Travis Kelsey, Taylor Swift, Spirit Love Force that's apparently alive and well and at work in the world, well, in that event, we might have to practice a little bit of civil disobedience, wouldn't we? I think we would. I don't think we could do that. And this is the same tension that Martin Luther King Jr., Navigated with such brilliance and wisdom back in the civil rights movement because King, like Peter and Jesus and Paul, before him correctly discerned that when the authorities seek to impose injustice and unfaithfulness upon us, we have to resist. 
we have a theological and moral obligation to resist, and we must do so fiercely. But even our fiercest resistance must still include a deep gentleness, humility, and even respect. Because if Jesus Christ was not above treating Pontius Pilate with gentleness, humility, and respect, and man, you are not above it either. You're not above it either. And I think that most of us, for the most part, we can get behind this idea of respecting those in authority, can't we? I think we can. I think we can get behind this idea of respecting those in authority. So long as we agree with those who are in authority. Like, yeah, I remember back, it wasn't too long ago, when George W. Bush was president. And uh, as you'll probably remember more, liberal or progressive folks, you know, they're very frustrated by George W. They said a lot of bad things about him. And some conservative Christians were very quick on the trigger with the old honor the authorities verses. And you know what? It's true. We just read them. Those verses are absolutely in the Bible. But then when Barack Obama became president, all of a sudden those very same Christians had no problem criticizing the president. And wouldn't you know it, those liberal and progressive Christians who hadn't seen their Bibles in a while, they found them and they dusted it off and they loved those submit to the authorities verses, right? All of a sudden, oh my Lord, they loved those verses. And back and forth it goes. You know, my side is in office, submit to the authorities. My side is out of the office, drain the swamp. Back and forth it goes, the tale is old as time. Um, this brings us to verses 19 through 21. Let's read them again. It says, for this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and you're harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. For you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. Okay? And so, so notice that the purpose for which we have been called is to follow in Jesus' example by being willing to submit ourselves to every human creature. Even when, and especially when, that submission means that we have to suffer unjustly. And to just say it plainly, this kind of sucks, doesn't it? I mean, ugh. Because have you ever suffered unjustly? Man, I, I don't think of myself as someone who's experienced a ton of unjust suffering in my life, but I've experienced some because I'm a human and every human has experienced some. And the little bit that I have experienced has been the most frustrating thing I've ever endured in my life. It makes me want to hurt somebody. Not honor and submit to somebody. And so why would we do something so ridiculous? Because it is kind of ridiculous. Well, Peter's rationalization of verses 22 through 24 is pretty straightforward, isn't it? Why would you do something this ridiculous? Because it's what Jesus Christ did for you. That's why you do it. Let's read verses 22 through 24 again. He, talking about Jesus, he committed no sin, 
nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. And so if you are someone who finds it ridiculous, and I get it because I kind of do too. (laughs) If you're someone who finds it ridiculous that you would be asked to suffer unjustly, then you do not understand what Jesus Christ did for you. The weight of it has not sunk in on you. You are somehow under the illusion that this is not what Jesus Christ has done for you. Because the most tangible manifestation of the way of goodness The clearest sign that the power of the gospel is at work and it's unleashed on the world is our spirit-empowered willingness to suffer injustice without resentment. And this brings us to one final very important question, right? Namely, okay, what if we do this? It's hard. What if we suffer injustice without resentment and it doesn't work? Meaning it does not cause those who are hurting you, oppressing you, to repent and see the light. It's a great question. I think there are a couple of important things to say in response to it. First off, we are not told to suffer injustice with gentleness, humility, respect, and without resentment because it works. Rather, we're told to do it. Why? What did Peter say? because it's what Jesus Christ did for you. That's why we do it. So in other words, y'all, Christian submission and humility, and some of us really need to hear this, Christian submission and humility, it is not a strategy for winning. You follow me? It's not a strategy for winning. Jesus is really not interested in you winning, right? Because Jesus Christ did not come to planet Earth to turn the tables in the power game. Rather, Jesus Christ came to do what? To overturn the tables in the power game. Jesus did not come to turn the power pyramid upside down, put those on bottom on top, those on top on bottom. No, Jesus came to invite all of us to stop playing this silly, stupid king of the mountain power game that we all seem to think is the only game in town. Jesus did not come to turn the tables, but to overturn the tables. The philosopher Jacques Elo put it really well when he said this, y'all. Our task is not to spend time pondering our success, but to obey our orders. Jesus is not here to help you win. Your job is to be faithful. That's what you've been asked to do. Not calculate if it will work. You be faithful. All right, so that's number one. But then second, okay, only after that being said, heard, received, accepted, while we don't graciously suffer because and only because it works, because it doesn't always work, I do think it's important to note that so far as I can tell, Nothing has done more to make the world a more gracious, just, and compassionate place than the Christian willingness to graciously suffer. Nothing has done more to change the course of history than the Christian willingness to graciously suffer. And to just be candid here, this is why I have such a conflicted relationship with what I would call the uh, church contrarian movement that is alive and well in the modern world because I mean, I don't know if you can tell, but I've got a little bit of contrarian in me, so like, I get it. And I do think that a certain amount of healthy skepticism is a very good and biblical thing. But on the other hand, um, this chronic 
contrarian skepticism of Christianity and the church, which is so prevalent in the modern world. Y'all, I know Christians who I've literally never heard say a good thing about the church or Christianity. And I'm like, why don't you bother? You could just go. No one making you stay here, man. Um, it's so silly and it's naive and it's gotten so far over its skis at this point. Like I remember talking to this guy. He was the humanist chaplain at the University of Cincinnati. And his dad was a really famous Christian, but he had actually recently walked away from Christianity. And I had recently released this book about faith and doubt and why I hadn't walked away from Christianity. So we're on this podcast having this conversation, kind of slash debate about why he walked away from Jesus and why I walked back towards Jesus. And um, what he made really clear was that the main reason that he had walked away from Christianity was because of the church's moral failings. He walked away from Christianity because he thought the church was an unjust and immoral place that was full of hypocrites. And that's a lot of people nowadays. And so I listened to this and I listened to all his examples and um, sadly he had a lot of good ones. (laughs) A lot of good examples. But finally I just said, well, okay, man, I hear you. But help me understand something. If you think that Christianity is false and unjust... And, and you reject all other religions, then help me understand why you think that injustice is wrong. Why is injustice wrong? And you could tell that he felt like I'd asked him one of those questions that had an answer so obvious you didn't know how to answer it. You know, parents, you know this question. When your kids ask you, Dad, why is water wet? You're like, I don't, I don't know, man. Go play with your iPad. <laughs> you know, I don't want to answer that question, bro. Same sort of deal. And so he's kind of stumbling with it. And then finally he just goes, well, I mean, obviously injustice is wrong. Everybody knows injustice is wrong. It is self-evident that injustice is wrong and the church is wrong for being an unjust and moral place. And so I said, look, man, I, I agree that injustice is wrong. And I agree that the church often fails morally. But I believe all those things because the church taught me to believe all those things. And so if you do not believe in the church and you do not believe in Christianity and you do not believe in Jesus, then I just don't understand what leg you have to stand on when you think that injustice is wrong. Because so far as I can tell, you don't really have a standard of right and wrong beyond how you feel about this, that, or the other. Because y'all, here's the deal. Nobody had much of a problem with injustice until Jesus Christ came along. And the primary reason that all of us enlightened modern people think that all people are created equal. Do you realize how absurd that belief is? I've never met two people created equal, ever in my whole life. That we, we modern people believe that all humans have these basic human rights, that we believe that it is wrong to bully and abuse women, that we believe it is wrong to throw unwanted children out in the street so that they can die of exposure. The primary reason that we believe those things, y'all, it's not because the universe told us so. It's because Jesus Christ told us so. That doesn't just rationally appear. Everybody, look at the events in Israel over this week. You think it appears clear to everybody that everybody's created equal and it's wrong to bully and abuse women and children? Apparently, it's not clear. We believe that stuff because Jesus Christ told us so. All that to say, look, it is good and right in measure to scrutinize the church for her moral failings, for they are many. It is. It's good to do that. But while doing so, Please do not forget that the primary reason it occurs to you to scrutinize the church for her moral failings is because the church has gifted you with your morality. 
The church has gifted you with your moral vision. And it's a demanding but beautiful moral vision. And you are right to hold the church to it. You're right to do that. But while you're doing that, don't forget to hold yourself to it. And don't forget where it came from. Because it didn't come from you. It came from Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ comes to us, however imperfectly, through the church. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we come before you today and we are so grateful for your love and your faithfulness to us. We come before you and we confess that we do want to walk the way of goodness. We feel it tugging on our hearts. No matter where we are today, God, we feel the tug of it, but it's hard because it requires us to do some very difficult things, to do what Jesus did, to suffer unjustly without resentment, but with gentleness, humility, and compassion. God, we pray that you would give us the strength to follow Jesus, to be people who walk the way of goodness, that the world could look at us and see that there is a better way. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen.